Well, today we are looking at part three of Salt and Light. Today's message is called The Joy of Salt and Light. And it's kind of an end days study. And I was talking with some folks before the service and they said, is, is this part three? Like, is this the final? And it's like, probably not. Uh, I'm dumping the whole tank in this one. And I, I, don't think I, I don't think I have enough time to even get through half of what I still have prepared for you today. So I want you to start bringing your Bible to church. I've been using my phone, but um, that doesn't work as good as having a paper Bible for people my age. But whatever works for you, but have a Bible of some sort with you, whether it's a device or a paper Bible, start doing that, especially now through Easter. And make notes. Feel free to make notes. Let God use this time. And I say that because I know what God's done in my life just in preparing this for you. See, The point isn't to be good church members. The point is to write God's word on your heart, and it's so important in these times. And I would encourage you to find a paper Bible. How many of you lost cell service this week for half the day? Anybody? Couple. Some reason it doesn't, stuff like that doesn't affect us in Iowa as bad. That's why I like it here. See, one of the things that God has asked me to do in coming to Iowa is to protect the flock that he sends here as best as I can. And that starts with telling you the hard truth, the biblical truth, sharing the joy and being real regardless of what that might lead to. That's the deal. I'm not here to build a church. I'm not here to honor the bride of Christ. I'm here to feed and protect anybody that comes through that door that needs me, that needs the elders here, that needs the ministries that are being reached out here. That's what we do. And that is part of being salt and light. To be salt and light, to be God's word in our heart, you know what that is? That's the fuel to make it go. You know, we could build the nicest race car in the world, have the fastest engine, no doubt, have the camber set just right, Perfect wedge, perfect air pressure in the left side versus the right side. For those of you racing fans know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you don't have any fuel, that car's not going anywhere. You can set it out by the track and make it look pretty. But if you really want to run, you need some gas. The word of God is that gas. And so are the people that God calls to be salt and light. So who are the salt and light? Well, it's the ones who have joy and who are in Christ. You say, is there there a phrase for today? Yeah, it's in Christ. I want to show you a couple scriptures to kick this off today. Philippians 1.1, let's start with that. This is the salutation portion portion of this particular book in the New Testament. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, in the book of Romans, the salutation's a little bit longer, but the point gets made in verse seven. Let's look at it, chapter one, verse seven of Romans. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, as saints. Let's move on to Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints, in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. 
One of the big takeaways for you today is to understand that the word of God is written to and for those who are in Christ. It's completely inadequate for those who are walking dead in their trespasses and sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that they're veiled, they can't even see what's going on, which is why we have grace and why we keep preaching the truth. Y'all remember COVID? No, I have no idea what COVID was. Remember, when do we get back to normal? Remember that question? Reality is, if you're paying attention, it's never happened. And in fact, if we are now in the end of days, then how should we live? How should we roll? What should be our actual priorities? Not just lip service, if we are in fact in Christ. How much of the beatdown of the worldview of cultural acceptability have we let infiltrate our walk with Jesus? Both as individuals and as the church, as the bride of Christ. Last week I asked a question, I'm going to ask it again. And I want you to ponder this for the next few weeks, next month, leading up to Easter. I really want you to ask yourself this one question. Do you think you can spot false teaching and false Christ? And if so, from what and from where do you derive your discernment? I feel the evidence is so strong. It's everywhere. Evidence that we are living in a time of incredible deception. And many are delusional that walk among us. What is really salt and light in a world where deception and delusional people are everywhere and it feels epidemic in nature? Like the whole world has gone mad. Where can our joy be found? How did we get here? What did we, you know, how did we get to a place where literal madness has become mainstream? What used to be so outrageous is now common, everyday stuff. Headline last night, two girls got injured in a basketball game because a transgender male was playing against them. Roughed them up under the boards. I don't know about you, but how bad you gotta hate women to just sit there and go, well, at least we're loving to the transgender man. Listen, have you ever heard of the Overton window? All right, I'm gonna circle back in a minute to joy. I'm going to circle back to the true joy found in Christ, but stay with me. I want to teach this to you if you don't know what the Overton window is. It is a theory concerning the range of policies politically and socially acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. Did you hear me? It's also known as the window of discourse. Let me explain. The term is named after an American policy analyst named Joseph Overton. He proposed that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within this range, this window, rather than on the politician's individual preferences. According to Overton, the window frames and range of policies that a politician can recommend without appearing too extreme to gain or keep public office, given the climate of public opinion at that time. Does that make sense? The window can be viewed as a spectrum that moves and or expands. It it moves and expands over an idea given in a specific location. See, it may become more or less politically or socially acceptable depending on where you are and what your environment is. Example, it's different here in Iowa than it is in New York. It's different in Alabama than it is in Arizona, follow? After Overton's death, 
His Mackinac Center for Public Policy colleague, Joseph Lehman, further developed the idea and named it after Overton. Now, the Overton window is, is, is uh, postulated on six degrees of acceptance. Did you get that? The idea is six degrees of acceptance of public ideas. Roughly, they are this. The unthinkable to the radical to acceptable to sensible to popular to now it's policy. See, that Overton window moves that way. It's an approach to identifying the ideas that define the spectrum of society acceptability and or governmental policies. I gave you just an example a minute ago about transgender men in a girl's basketball game. Some of us, the Overton window has not shifted that far. We still look at it through here, but others are already over here. Let me give you another society example that we should all be able to relate to. Prior to September 2001, we would never have socially allowed the level of TSA security uh, scrutiny at airports. There was an incident that happened on the 11th of September, okay, that moved the window of acceptability rapidly due to people wanting to travel safely. A few months later, on December 22nd, 2001, or 2000, 2001, a dude tried to light the explosives in his shoes. Remember that? And just like that, boom, taking off your shoes to go through security became a thing and has remained a thing. The Overton window has moved quickly again because of fear. Before that guy tried to light his shoes on fire, the thought of taking off your shoes to go through airport security was foolish. Now it's, it's just assumed See, the most common misconception is that policymakers themselves uh, are in the business of shifting the Overton window. That used to be absolutely false. Used to be. Policymakers were actually in the business of detecting where the window is and then moving to be in accordance with it. Thus, for the last hundred years, we have no honest politicians, right? But COVID changed that. And a demonic, non-journalistic media helped them. They moved it quick. And guess what? Churches and ministries do the same thing. Especially when they lower their view of the scriptures to try to get in that window where they might be able to grow their ministry. See, the fact that the window used to be the window and we would move to it changed with technology and the rise of fake righteousness. Now the push is on to move the window and to do so by going hard left in anything and everything and foot to the floor, who cares? Brand everything not in harmony with the demonic push as misinformation and or dangerous and let's weed out any dissent. Use an incredibly unholy union of demonic media, big pharma, uh, big pharma thirsty, power thirsty government and arrogant big tech and all being fed a satanic doctrine through the education system. You don't think our education system is satanic in doctrine? It's filled with universities who hate Christianity, hate the reality of creation, hate the traditional family, hate the patriarchy, and hate America. Why? Because the time is short. This acceleration makes per perfect sense if we are near to the end of days and the return of our Lord. Do you see the acceleration? 
COVID was supposed to be the fuel on the fire, and now we are just weeks away from our national sovereignty being signed over to the World Health Organization. It's coming in May of this year. And if Biden's controllers make him sign it, our free world takes a severe hit. If the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? This assignment from God to be actual salt and light as we walk out our faith keeps getting harder. Both as individuals and as a collective. And you know what we need? We need joy to work it out. We need joy to work it out. See, the Overton window theory just explains how ideas come in and out of fashion. Same way gravity explains how something falls to the ground. You can use gravity to drop an anvil on my head. That would be wrong. You could also use gravity to throw me a life preserver. That would be good. Let me give you another concrete example of window movement. You go back to 1993. In season four, episode 17 of the sitcom Seinfeld, Jerry and George were mistakenly outed as a gay couple by a reporter. As the story hits, Jerry and George begin to deny the story as untrue, which it was. But they do so now with the famous line, not that there's anything wrong with that. Hey, we're not gay, not that there's anything wrong with that. Over and over as a, as a punchline in a sitcom as we laughed. But the Overton window of acceptability moved because of this. Don't kid yourself. There is power in effective storytelling. Jesus knew this and 2,000 years later the parables still play this out, yes? So then in September of 1998, with the debut of the TV show Will and Grace, again the Overton window regarding the view of homosexuality moved because of the power of storytelling. Finally, we now had a gay character that was fun, engaging, and incredibly likable. The window moved. The window moved. See, in 1988, 165 leading lobbyists of the LGB community, and that's who they were at that point, got together. And Lisa Miller wrote a book, you can look it up. It was the defining work of their strategy. I have watched this my whole journalistic life play out, especially in the 90s. Their main strategy was to categorize LGB as an oppressed people group. And whenever you talked about slavery, whenever you talked about the American Indians, whenever you talked about things that we were universally against, you would add the LGBT in there. Affirmative action. How many remember in the 90s when you started seeing uh, applications to get a driver's license or whatever start to change where you couldn't mention your sex, you know, you couldn't ask for sexual orientation? It's just was an Overton window shift in our culture. No one wants to disparage an oppressed group. So they align themselves as an oppressed group. It was a strategy and they won. It worked. So I want to give you five points and then some strong scripture that will help you have joy in these times. Maybe move your own personal Overton window back to being a full biblical worldview or to strengthen you in holding firm to what you know is real because you have been born again. Those of you who are 
in Christ. Point number one, you can find joy in walking out your faith. You can find joy in walking out your faith. Simply walking daily with a joyful, repentant heart is valuable. Joyfully consuming the scriptures, intentionally walking it out with God, directly in prayer, simple, basic, yet powerful. When Emily and I read the scriptures lately, I keep saying, no, don't read it as scripture, read it as a story. Open up the book of Romans, open up 1 John, you know, read, read those few chapters, it takes like 15 minutes, read it as if somebody's giving you a speech or you're hearing it from the town crier in ancient world. Don't look at it as chapter and verse and just, just look at it as a whole. Let God write it on your heart this week. Read a psalm that way. It's amazing. The country Finland, known as the happiest country in the world, had a secular psychology and relationship study done, and it is surprising how biblical it is. See, the truth of walking with Jesus of the Bible and how that plays out in real time in our real lives with real contentment is astounding. That peace, that it is well with you, is something people of all walks of life are pursuing, and I would probably guess 99.9% of you are pursuing that as well. I'll bring it back to the Bible in a minute. But first, I want you to hear what the Finns did with this study, a secular study. The article headline says, three crucial ways to make yourself happier. You want to hear them? Number one, a strong sense of community and relatedness. Number two, doing good deeds for other people make you happy. Number three, finding a clear purpose for oneself will make you happy. Does that sound like something you might find in a born-again Christian? Sound like things you might find in an authentic church that has surrendered to Jesus and his word? The researcher said this, having people around you who care about you and whom you care about makes people happy. She goes on, luckily, that can be true even in very dire material conditions. Even without a stable environment, the study says people can find happiness by hanging out with friends, visiting family, connecting with others over simple things as simple as a card game. Do you see it? Even when the human condition doesn't even acknowledge biblical principles, God won't be mocked. His ways are still the best ways. When you are in Christ, you will walk out his ways having a high view of the word, and that is paramount to us walking out his ways with a high view of the word of God. See, the best way to trip you up is to get you to dim your view of the Bible. Not just the authority of God's word, but in our culture, it's sufficiency. The scriptures are sufficient for all of us to walk out our faith. The enemy will tell you other things. Slight alterations. Did God say? Did God really mean that? Does that, really, does that passage really actually say that? Yes, we have an enemy. But point number two. Point number two, you can find joy in full knowledge that Satan, one of the one who desires to destroy you, has been fully defeated. One of the huge misconceptions in our culture is who Satan really is. Remember that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to deliver us from the enemy, the evil one. So it can be said that at the heart of Jesus' teachings is that he had a real concern for the reality of Satan, 
Common sense tells you that. See, we have a cultural misunderstanding of who this enemy really is. Some call it an evil force. And I don't know if Star Wars influenced that or what, but evil around us is not a spiritual force. It cannot be. It has to be a personal or individual being. R.C. Sproul says the topic, this topic of Satan is that we have traded the sound for the unsound. Let me explain. Can a tornado or a cyclone be judged to be immoral? No. Of course not. Sheer forces have no moral capacity. Follow? It must be personal. It must be a being with a mind and a, and a will and a conscience. Consider this. Now, when we go back to the Middle Ages, the church did have a belief in the reality of Satan. They were interested in protecting themselves from his onslaught. So they devised various plans to combat this. They said to themselves, as you know, humans will do, we know about Satan and we know that the, way, the reason Satan fell is because of his pride. So they concluded that the greatest point of vulnerability is his pride. The Bible says, resist Satan and he will flee from you. So the church in the Middle Ages put it all together and determined the best way to resist Satan was to make fun of him. Attack his pride, humiliate him, and that'll drive him away because he can't stand to be humiliated. Again, this is the Middle Ages now. So what did they do? They would hang these pictures that they invented, these awful drawings and sketches of Satan, making him look like a foolish court jester. They put him with horns, a tail, red underwear, pitchfork, and all that stuff. And then they would hang those pictures around the gathering places to mock Satan. And what happened is the next generation would see these pictures and they struggled to understand what grandma and grandpa had been embracing. Really? A smirking little creature in a red suit, horns and a pitchfork? What kind of shallow, dewy-eyed, unsophisticated nonsense is this, Grandpa? Look, a simple skimming of the scriptures, you can see that nowhere is Satan described as a dolt or a fool or a buffoon. The word of God describes him in his first appearance as the serpent, listen now, most crafty and subtle of all the creatures. Did you catch that? He's a creature. A creature given incredible gifts. First displayed was that of craftiness and subtleness. The New Testament describes him as a counterfeit angel of light. He is the ultimate heretic because deception and delusion is his goal and masquerading as an angel of light. His cleverness, don't miss this, his cleverness is sophisticated. It's handsome, it's eloquent, it's deceptive. Think about it in end times terms. Satan relationship to the Antichrist. The word anti used in scripture, it's, it's used two ways in scripture. First, the word anti means against or someone who is opposed to something. So the Antichrist is one who stands against and opposed to Christ and his followers. Also, the word anti means instead of or in place of. Thank you, R.C. Sproul, for teaching me this. In so many ways, the Antichrist is manifested in the Bible is as a substitute for Christ. It is the counterfeit trying to imitate the genuine. And the Bible tells us 
that Satan and his Antichrist are so good at what they do, if possible, they would deceive even the elect. That should wake you up in the morning. So I'm making this point so that you will see that the evil we see outright is a part of it. We see it, it's plain as day. We see the evil, that's part of it. But the other fake righteousness stuff we also see is from this, the slightly off things. In fact, much of what we fight against is how good and righteous some things look to us. But if we lay it down next to scripture, it falls short and the deception of Satan falls short. It doesn't connect because the truth is strong in those of us who are in Christ. Remember right and wrong versus right and almost right? Always hold on to the fact that in Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. Our enemy is crushed and we give him no room while we stand in Christ. That is a joyful place. That is a joyful state. Once you realize that Satan can't touch you when you are in Christ. Can't trip you. Can't, you know, he, he can trip you. He can make you stumble. Sure, that happens from time to time. But when you are in Christ, you get up and keep going because we know he can't touch this. Who knew MC Hammer was a theologian? Can't touch this. <laughs> Point number three. Joy in telling and sharing the truth of God in Scripture. When you share the truth of the gospel, one of four things will happen every time. Listen to me now. First, some will laugh or mock. Second, some will belittle or denigrate. Third, some will listen to more, pursue more. Or four, some will accept the truth of the gospel and repent and get a new life in Christ. That's what happens every time you share the gospel. One of those four things is gonna happen. So now let me ask you, or let me share with you what happens if you shave the edges of truth to make it a little more palatable for the people you're sharing it with? One of four things is gonna happen. They're gonna laugh and mock, or they're gonna belittle and denigrate, or some will listen and wanna pursue more, or some will accept the truth of the gospel, repent and get a new life in Christ. What happens if you totally soften it Make it as seeker-sensitive as possible because you can't stand the thought of the first two things happening to you. You don't want them to laugh or belittle, so you wuss out. Guess what? Some will mock and laugh. Some will belittle and denigrate. Some will listen to want, want to hear more, pursue more. Less will accept the truth of the gospel and repent and get a new life in Christ. So let's say you go straight up heresy and share a Jesus that doesn't even exist because you're afraid of the people you're speaking to. One of four things is gonna happen. You getting this? Some will laugh and mock. Some will belittle or try to denigrate you. Some will wanna listen to more, pursue more. And very few, if any, will accept the truth of the gospel and repent and get a new life in Christ. So why not share the biblical true Jesus Without apology, share the truth in actual love, not some watered-down garbage. Share it like that. You know why? Because the results will be the same. Some will laugh and mock. 
Some will belittle and denigrate. Some will listen to more and pursue more. And some will accept the truth of the gospel, repent and get a new life in Christ. And you know what you will get? You will get joy resulting from sharing the Jesus you loved because he first loved you and you are in Christ. Point number four. Joy with your inputs because you know it affects your outputs. Joy with your inputs because you know it affects your outputs. Six Sigma is a manufacturing schooling and it's about the backing out process to examine the inputs to get the desired outputs. Let me give you a lame little example. This cup right here is the output. So we back it out. What kind of material are we gonna use for the lid? How many inches is it going to be? What color are we gonna paint it? What kind of steel are we gonna use for it? And we back that all out. We find vendors, we find suppliers, we find processes, so how it goes in. And then we've got marketing over here, and now over here we've got other things. So the paint comes in, the metal comes in, the machines come in that, that mold this, and they start working together, and all of these inputs now are going to affect this output. Make sense? Salt and light in the home. I'm talking about your inputs. What you put in your mind, your body, how do you use your time, what food you consume will affect the output of your mood, your health, and your energy. It's no different in your spiritual walk. Things like your music, your TV, your what Emily and I call sitting around time. I hate when my phone rings in my sitting around time. Your habits the time you spend with God, it will affect your outputs. What outputs are you talking about, Chris? Outputs like contentment, outputs like peace, outputs like love in your heart, outputs like having the joy of the Lord when you're in Christ. And that is point number five. Joy of being in Christ, it is the joy is being in Christ, being a new person, a new life in Christ. Notice how Paul addressed the letter to the Philippians. He was writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That designation set these people apart. You see, not everyone in Philippi was in Christ. Just like not everyone here at Fresh Encounter is in Christ. Not everyone in Iowa is in Christ. It's the state of being in Christ Jesus that makes one a Christian. Look at 1 John 5, 12. Got some scriptures to bring it home today. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son, bada bing, bada boom, does not have life. I mean, can you guys read? This is not hard. That begs the question then, how does a person get in Christ? Depending on who you ask, the answer to that question might range from being baptized to living a good life to you know, doing good things. However, if we really want to know the truth about how to be in Christ Jesus, I think we seek the answers from the Bible itself. That's pretty fair. So what does the word of God say about the matter? First, the Bible makes it clear that you cannot be saved on your own strength. This bites for a lot of men, particularly. We don't like having things done for us. We like doing stuff ourselves. Show me what I have to do and let me earn it. Can't do it. Hill's too, hill's too high, you'll never make it. The very best you can do amounts to like filthy rags in the sight of God. 
good works, good deeds, it may make the finished people happy, but it won't save you. Ephesians 2.1 says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift from God. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. I love being plucked off the salvage pile. I love that God gave me new life and gave me a purpose and gave me a plan to work out my, you know, my, my life and, and the sanctification process continues on every day. I can't claim any of it. It's all him. You know why? Romans 8.8. 8. As I try to work stuff out in my flesh, as I try to work stuff out in my effort, I can't please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what is that true path to salvation? Where can I find that in the Bible? <laughs> all over. But how about we just narrow in on Romans 10 for a minute. Romans 10 verses nine through 11 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't think that you're that much of a sinner and that you're pretty good, you got a problem. You need to confess with your mouth. Know that you are a sinful person. See, every religion in the world is trying to work their way up this hill towards God. Jesus Christ, in Christ, Christianity is the only place where God from heaven works his way down to us while we're still sinful, he finds us and we confess him and he saves us. Verse 10, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Acts 16, 31 says, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I don't have it on the screen, but can't help but think of John 3, 16. How many of you can quote it with me? Let's go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I know that was a little like the Lord's Prayer. We traveled all over the country. I spoke in 200 churches in 36 different states, and when the Lord's Prayer came up, I never knew when we got to that point whether it was gonna be trespasses, debts, or sins. So, Lord, forgive us our uh, trust uh, sins, sins. <laughs> Everybody's got a different, same, same concept though, right? Third, the Bible is again clear when it tells us that this salvation is available to all men. You have not sinned your way out of this. Your salvage pile is not so great that God can't pluck you off it, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done. Even if you walked with him and you are in a backslidden state, now's the time to come back for this time and Romans 10, 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation 22, 17 says, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. Isaiah 55, 1 backs this up. Thousands of years before Revelation was written. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver, without cost. It's a free gift. It's free for everybody. How can this be? How can this incredible eternal life, heir with Jesus Christ, be free? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to have some sort of behavior modification? 
standing out of a taco truck in Tucson, Arizona, I don't know, 10 years ago, 24 back, 15 years ago. And I'm talking to this kid that was going to college, and he's like, yeah, you know, uh, I, I need to get back to church, but I got to clean myself up first. I got to quit, quit smoking. I got to quit doing weed. I'm like, dude, no. Go and confess your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and he will clean you up. He will pluck you off the salvage pile. You come to him just as you are. Well, can I have Jesus and all these sinful things? No. You know why? Because he's going to change your attitude about them. It's not going to be behavior modification. Fourth, the Bible is clear when it teaches that anyone who does not come to Jesus the Bible way, and here's the hard cheese, will not be saved and will not go to heaven. John chapter three, verses three and verse seven says this. Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse seven Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. Everyone who is born again has confessed with their mouth, they are, you know what? In Christ. Luke 13, three says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Do you love people enough to tell them? Or are you afraid? Hebrews 2.3 says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This puts the pressure on those of us in Christ. We can't neglect this great salvation. So we have to do what God's called us to do. And that is not necessarily quitting your job and becoming a missionary. It might be doing more with your inputs in your home, more with your inputs at your job, more with your inputs in the community to affect the output of not neglecting such a great salvation. See, this salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The scripture confirms it to us. And we know we can't argue. So the answer to our question is simple. Respond to the call of God. Repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ into your life. Then you will be in him and he will be in you, and you will be saved. That's how it works. That's the fact, Jack. Now having said all that, let me say that when a person trusts Jesus as their savior, that person becomes part of the family of God. Regardless of his or her background, they become one with all other believers. We all share a common birth that places us in the same family. In the body of Christ, we all have different things that we do. The question that remains to be answered today is have you experienced that new birth? Are you genuinely saved this morning? If you are, praise God. If not, you can be by trusting Jesus and has shed blood on the cross. And I just gave you the scriptures of confessing with your mouth, recognizing your sin, confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ came and paid the sacrifice for you. See, there's life in the blood. And in the blood of Jesus, he was the only one that lived a perfect life. See, in Genesis 3, 15, it says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
Jesus is the seed of the woman all the way back in Genesis 3.15. He's the one who lived the perfect life that you and I can't live. Because of that perfect life, he has now the authority in Revelation. Is there anyone worthy to open the scrolls? Finally, there was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Making sense? The Bible flows hand in glove from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, all the way to Revelation 22. And what started in Genesis is completed in Revelation. And I want you to see that. You can't, if you become, what happens to some of us when we become in Christ? We become Bible idiots. And we just keep consuming it every day. And every day we grow a little stronger in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't know him, I'll introduce him to you. We have some great men of God in this church that will also introduce them to you. I'm not gonna do an altar call and ask those to close their eyes and slip up their hands. I don't keep score. But I'll tell you this, if the Lord is knocking on your heart, today could be the day for salvation for you. A bunch of us are hanging around. Oh, I don't know if I want somebody to see me come talk to the pastor. Then you've missed the whole point. Those of you who are saved, now is the time to be salt and light. Now is the time to say, "Uh uh-uh. We are gonna stand for the truth of God's word and we're gonna do it with joy. We're gonna do it with love in our heart and we're gonna do it because Jesus Christ is leading us. Why? Because we are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Let these be your words to your children now. Lord, let us, let us pursue you with everything we've got, even though that will be weak. You're gonna even have to help us pursue you. That's how weak we can be. And Lord, touch the hearts of those who wanna come off the salvage pile once and for all. And Lord, those who are off the salvage pile, who are in Christ, strengthen them to be agents of your mercy and your grace in the world in which you've placed them. Strengthen us now, each and every day. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Salvaged by God is the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Danielson out of Fresh Encounter Church in Harlan, Iowa. For more of Chris's teaching and a couple podcasts you might like, go to freshroadmedia.com.